I'm Jason Hatcher, Managing Principal of Navigator's Western Operations. Welcome to the Western Edge, a Navigator podcast featuring the latest perspectives on Western Canada's biggest stories. This week, we're continuing with part two of our mini-series, where we're taking a look back at the year that was in politics and government across the Western provinces. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Pankhurst. Rob is a former Chief of Staff in Manitoba's PC government, having served in finance, education, and healthcare. Rob is currently the Western Canadian Vice President at MedTech Canada. Listen in for a fantastic discussion with Rob about the political landscape in Manitoba as it heads into an election year. This week, we're talking everything Manitoba, and this is the Western Edge. Welcome, Rob. Thanks very much. Great to be here today. Rob, it's been an interesting couple of years in Manitoba. And like uh, us who reside in Alberta, you guys are heading into an election year next year, which means for political folks like us, well, it's either silly season or the best watching that money can buy. It looks like Manitoba politics is almost as exciting as the Jets, although with the way the Jets have been playing this year, maybe that's a, a, an overstatement on the politics because the Jets have been playing pretty darn well this year. Let's not jinx All right, Jason. see, I did that, right? See, that's just like an Albertan who cheers for Montreal Canadiens. Now we're all over the place. This is the way I like to start a podcast. Okay. So, Rob, really interesting year and an interesting year coming up. Obviously, we have a new premier in Manitoba in the last couple of years. We have a leader in the NDP in Wab Canoe who's going to be going into his second election as leader, and polls are getting interesting there. But before we dive into everything specific, why don't you just give us a, a little bit of a level set, lay of the land, and, and tell us what's been going on. I think we're fresh off the throne speech. We are, we are. So maybe what I'll do just to get started, Jason, is I'll sort of just step back to September 1st of 2021. So that that was the date that Brian Pallister, the former premier, formally resigned, which kicked off a leadership race or part of leadership race for the governing party. And really to level set things, I mean, I think it's important just for your listeners to know that that was a fairly divisive leadership race, right? We mm -hmm. saw the current current premier, Heather Stephenson. Um, she's been in MLA since 2001, represents an affluent West Winnipeg riding. She was pitted against Shelley Glover, a Harper era cabinet minister. And, you know, not to go into all the sort of nitty gritty details, but Stephenson narrowly won that race, sorry, Premier Stephenson, um, by a margin of 51 to 49%. You know, there was a court case that flowed from that. Uh, so that's really, I think, where folks need to start for where we're at today. So you started us off there. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. A year later, we're about just a little over a year removed from that leadership race. And it's certainly something that I think caught national attention. Given how close the end result was, it, it was razor thin between the two candidates, but Premier Stephenson ultimately prevailed. Tell us what it's been like in this last year. Do we have a United Caucus, the United Cabinet? And, and I guess as we head into an election, how is the party on the ground? Because as, as you and I both know, it's one thing to have a United Caucus or Cabinet, but you need to have those folks on the ground. They're so critical to elections. Those are the folks that ultimately really, really win elections. They get the ballots out. For sure. I think you, you raise a series of great points. So, I mean, I think, look, the previous premier in this province, Premier Pallister, had a perception that he didn't listen, that he was a cabinet of one, that he sort of ruled with an iron fist. I think the new premier, despite some challenges around the, the leadership being closed and the court case that flowed from that, from the very beginning, she was focused on, you know, I'm going to rule, I'm going to be premier with a different tone. Uh, I'm going to, you know, have caucus engaged and have caucus behind me, which she did. If I'm not mistaken, she got, uh, you know, nearly 100% of caucus behind her leadership. I think, frankly, where not just the premier, but the government have struggled a little bit 
is to identify sort of who they are and where they're at. If you were to describe the previous premier, I think doing things slowly was not in his vocabulary. It was sort of an all or nothing approach. That's not been the case uh, with the new government. I think they've been a little more measured in their approach. But the result of that has really been, I think, in some ways, they've struggled to find sort of who they are. You know, on the party organization side, I will say this is not something I'm actively engaged in these days. But just from the outside looking in, I mean, there are some things that I think, you know, on the governing side are concerning. I'll give you an example, right? The party had a, a fundraiser scheduled for earlier this month that got canceled. And the reason that was given at the time was, well, you know, it's Grey Cup weekend and, and we want to celebrate in the Bombers participation in the Grey Cup. Now, I personally don't buy that. I mean, I just don't, I don't see a reason why a party would cancel a fundraiser unless, frankly, ticket sales weren't there. And, and I think that sort of speaks to perhaps where the party's at. On the organizational side, I think it's it's an interesting dynamic in Manitoba um, because this is a very sort of labor-ready province in a lot of respects. And the previous premier did sort of go to war a lot with organized labor. So he, you know, reduced the number of bargaining units in healthcare. And so, so organized labor is ready to campaign against the government of the day. And so I think there are boots on the ground on both sides and, and perhaps maybe more so on the opposition side. I think they're motivated to get active in 2023. Before we leave the, the PC leadership from last year, what has been, what has Shelley Glover and her report has been done since? Have they gone away? Are they still active and participating? Are they supportive of the premier? What's the dynamic there at this point? You know, it's a really interesting question. So after the former premier resigned, there was a by-election in the West Winnipeg constituency of, of Fort White, another fairly affluent constituency. Um, and there was some talk about what would the Glover team do and would Glover herself run? And at the time that she she committed to the media that the only role uh, that she was interested in government was that of first minister. I think one of the things I will say is that the premier has, from my perspective, um, again, just from the outside looking in, Jason, she's really making efforts to mend fences as much as she can. So she's going to lots of events, trying to be, you know, embedded in the social fabric of, of Winnipeg and Manitoba. And she's doing that, I think, partly for the voting populace, but also partly because I think she recognizes that there is a need to mend some of those fences that you that you referenced. It's interesting you say that. I think the premier is developing uh, and has developed a reputation of really working hard, being accessible and trying to trying to get out there amongst the community. That's something that we've we've, we've seen here as well. Before we, we sort of move over and, and have a look at what the opposition party at the NDP are doing in, in Manitoba, maybe let's just kind of look. You did mention that Stephenson had a very different style from Palliser and, and has been working hard, but we have seen some polling that, that shows perhaps it's not quite translating yet into electoral support or at least intention to vote. I understand that Angus Reid, the Angus Reid Institute had a poll in, I believe, September that showed that she had the lowest approval rating of any premier. How is that playing out in the dynamic? Do you see that shifting? And did that? do you think that impacted the recent speech from the throne? Yeah, I mean, listen, Jason, I think the premier's approval rating is reflective of a combination of things. I'll just sort of run through those from my perspective. I think people feel a bit angry about the sort of too much, too fast approach that I referenced earlier. So what I mean in particular is, you know, the previous premier um, led a very activist government around uh, some significant policy uh, areas. So things like reducing the number of emergency rooms in the city of Winnipeg from six to three, things like consolidating bargaining units in the health system that I mentioned earlier, things like a plan to eliminate school boards that ultimately didn't, didn't launch. So I think there was a bit of a feeling of, of, of hangover from that. 
I will also say, I mean, although, as you referenced, I think the premier's approval rating is hovering around 25%. That's not significantly different from where it was uh, just a little over a year ago when she came into the first minister's office. So, I mean, I think you are seeing some stability there for better or for worse. In terms of the throne speech and heading into an election, I think that the Tories are facing an uphill battle. I think that they have an opposition leader who, in contrast, frankly, has found his mojo. I think what the Tories need to do as much as possible in the next year is that they need to define themselves and they need to do that as quickly as possible. But I will just point, though, to, you know, I do think and not to sort of overuse the old adage, Jason, but I do think that campaigns matter. And I think if you think about the Winnipeg context in particular, so one of the polling firms that does the horse race numbers commonly in this province did a poll just around the Winnipeg mayoral campaign. And they had Glenn Murray 20 points ahead, you know, two months out from the election. And that did not materialize. And so, you know, same in 2017 with Christy Clark in British Columbia. So I don't think it's all for naught would be the sum uh, for me at this point in time. Well, and it's certainly Winnipeg is a, is a key battleground. I mean, it's in some ways, uh, Manitoba is unique in Canada with a really large urban center that has well over 60% of the population, if I'm not mistaken, is there. Yeah, about 70. So there we go. So let's move over and speak a little bit about what can you and the NDP. We both reference that uh, next year is is an election year in the province, which means uh, things are no doubt gearing up and we're starting to move towards, well, that that election season. Tell us a little bit about Wab Canoe. He is known probably to a number of our listeners, not just as as leader of the NDP in Manitoba going into his uh, second election. If I'm not mistaken, he was elected in about 2017 as leader. But in addition to be a longstanding MLA in Manitoba, he's also was a CBC personality, very strong Indigenous leader across this country, an artist, a musician, so well-known, and obviously someone who's very comfortable in front of the camera and comfortable delivering his message. What have you seen sort of in the evolution of Wab Canoe as, as leader of the NDP since the last election until now? You know, I think that's a really great question, and it's well-timed because I actually saw him speak last week to a business audience, and I think that the transformation that we see in Mr. Canoe personally, frankly, is remarkable from 2016 when he was elected, and I was still at the legislature at that time, where you saw him sort of frequently get angry in front of the mic. You know, it was relatively easy to get under his skin. You certainly don't see that anymore. He's comfortable in his own skin. Um, I'll just add, you know, he was also a children's book author in addition to all the other things that you mentioned. And so has a real uh, national presence. He was an honorary witness to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So he's well-versed in the Indigenous issues that that you made reference to. But more than anything, Thing. And, and I don't mean to repeat myself, Jason, but I just think, you know, he's a guy, A, who's comfortable in his own skin. But as I said earlier, you know, he's really found his mojo. When you listen to him talk, he sounds reasoned, he sounds measured, he presents well. And I think it's sort of this perspective, if you're the opposition, that, you know, if the house is burning down and you want to see a change, you sort of just don't call the fire department. I think that's really where Mr. Canoe is at. I think it's a different story on the caucus side, quite frankly, which is why you see you know, when you go on the NDP's website, it, it's Wab Canoe and Wab Canoe's family and his children and his wife, who's a physician. I think there are a lot of wild cards on the caucus side that will be difficult to manage for Mr. Canoe. But I also think, you know, you measure the strength of parties going into an election oftentimes by the types of folks that they nominate. And it will be interesting to look at that dynamic as well. And I will just note as well, just on that front, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the New Democrats are most of the way through their nominations for 2023 they're well ahead of the governing party. 
that's where I was going to go next. So maybe for those listeners who so are both inside Manitoba, maybe outside as well, where are going to be the key regions or battlegrounds in the next election? Is it, is it safe to assume that, that for the NDP to make inroads, they have to win in, in Winnipeg? Uh, so, I mean, I mean, yes, but I think it's safe to assume that they're going to do that. So in, in 2016, the, the governing Tories won 40 out of 57 seats. So there's 57 seats in the legislature. And that saw a swath of seats, in particular in, in northwest Winnipeg and in some rural areas north of Winnipeg. So Selkirk, there's a riding called Dawson Trail, um, some of those others that were just non-traditional Tory seats. So I look, I don't think anyone's expecting either side to have, you know, a major sort of 40 out of 57 like that. But I, I think it is quite reasonable to think that the New Democrats are going to have considerable success, in particular in Northeast Winnipeg, in perhaps in some of those sort of semi-urban seats just outside of Winnipeg. Uh, to the north, places like Selkirk, where uh, they haven't been successful since uh, since 2016. So you mentioned uh, recruitment of, of candidates. You know, it's always challenging for a, an incumbent government that's been there for a while to recruit new candidates, if you will, or recruit high-profile candidates, especially if it feels like it might be a change election, or at least that is one of the potential ballot questions. Is it time for a change? But like focusing on the NDP for a second here, Rob, still, what kind of candidates are they attracting? And, you know, for, for those of us who, who live across Western Canada, we've seen sort of two types of NDP politicians, if you will, sort of the prairie pragmatists. We've seen in Saskatchewan and Alberta, and then we see, uh, and, and, and to BC to some degree, but we also see across the country more social activism from the NDP and labor support and like, what version of the NDP does Rob Canoe represent on the spectrum? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, good question. I think, you know, one of the themes that's emerging, and you said you wanted to stay on the opposition New Democrats, and I'm quite happy to do that. But just one small note, sure. you know, as we as we sort of get closer and closer to election season, although arguably, we're already there in some ways, one of the themes that you're seeing emerge from the government benches is that Wab Canoe is no Gary Dewar. What folks mean when they say that is Gary Dewar was very much that sort of prey pragmatist that you mentioned. So he's a guy who came out in favor of a number of federal Tory budgets because in his mind, they were good for Manitobans. He was a middle of the road Tory who, like Mr. Canoe, actually lost, you know, a couple of elections in opposition. And, and at the time, sort of in the mid 90s, the knives were out for him. So there are some parallels around Gary Dewar, but you do see the, the governing progressive conservatives trying Trying to draw that line very strong because Gary Dewar is still a very popular figure. I think in Manitoba, both nationally, having served as the U.S. ambassador uh, to Canada under the Harper administration. But to your question, um, just around you know the types of folks the New Democrats are nominating at this time. So there is a by-election going on uh, currently in Kirkfield Park, I, and that's a, a, a that's a riding that has traditionally been sort of decently strong Tory uh, territory. It did go uh, New Democrat from 2007 to 2016, but prior to that, it had never gone anything but Tory. And that's really seen as a test of the government's strength and the government's sort of popularity. The former finance minister, that was his seat in, in the legislature. So the New Democrats there, have they've nominated uh, an individual who is an active jail guard, so a, a member of the Manitoba General Employees Union. Um, the Liberals have, have nominated a nurse, and the Tories have nominated a former city councillor who recently ran for mayor and placed third. And I think the Tories are really hedging their bets on the strength of that individual to try to bring up their tide. The New Democrats uh, are working that riding hard. And that individual seems to be reflective of the kind of candidates that they're that they're nominating. So it's a mix of community-minded folks, labor-minded folks, often folks with strong ties to the party. There's a few former staffers. 
So, I mean, what you're not seeing, at least, and, and I'm not paying sort of chapter and verse attention to this, Jason, but what I'm not seeing from the outside looking in is just maybe a little bit more of sort of the other side of the coin. So folks with experience um, in management, whether that be in, in business or labor or, or, or any uh, sort of sphere of that stream. And I think that's only going to reinforce those caucus challenges, uh, which Mr. Canoe may be able to mitigate if he's able to uh, ride an election on the strength of his own personal brand and sort that problem out afterwards. Although I think it'll be difficult, I don't think it's I don't think it's impossible. Well, and so so certainly one thing to watch then that's going to be a bit of a bellwether that uh, that Kirkfield Park by election. It was interesting we saw Wab Canoe here in Calgary in the last month or so uh, doing a speech and a fundraiser at uh, at the NDP AGM here. Be interesting to see how those potential alliances go uh, work going forward. Often, as as we've noted on this podcast, uh, in the NDP have a strong group of activist campaigners, and, and some of those folks travel from election to election. We have. Ontario, um, Alberta's coming in Manitoba. So the timing could be important too, in terms of how the makeup of those teams come together to ultimately deliver the election. Yeah, you know, Jason, just on the organizational side, which I, you already mentioned is, is not unimportant. Another sort of key indicator just to note. So the New Democrats have already announced their central campaign manager, and that's Brian Topp. So Brian has managed a number of, of central campaigns. I don't think he's someone who would get, get involved if he didn't think he could win. So I think that's an indicator. But just the other thing I'll mention is, to my knowledge, and again, from the outside looking in on this, but I don't believe that the Tories uh, have made an announcement around their central campaign manager. So that'd be just another indicator of where I think the New Democrats are out ahead on that particular metric. Yeah, Brian, top for listeners may remember, uh, ran Rachel Notley's successful campaign in, in 2015, amongst other, other achievements he's had politically. That'll be interesting to watch indeed. All right. So we've talked about the political sort of lay of the land, if you will. Let's let's get into some of the issues that are driving the narrative or driving the discussion uh, in Manitoba. I got to ask you, I mean, we're seeing this across the, the, the country and Navigator's own research, but affordability and healthcare seem to be top line issues wherever we seem to be dipping our toe in the water and seeing what people think. Are you hearing the same? It kind of appeared so from looking at the speech from the throne. Yeah, you know, I think uh, both parties are are making efforts to frame uh, the ballot question. So I think that, and the New Democrats have been very upfront about this. They expect uh, and they want to fight an election on healthcare. And the Tories, um, although I don't think they've been upfront about it, and I think they're still frankly, getting their house in order in terms of what the ballot question will be. But I think if you ask them today, uh, or the folks that are, are, are engaged in those discussions, I think they'd like the question to be affordability um, and, and the best put forward for Manitoba's economic success. I think that the, the reality, though, is quite different. I think that the reality is that the ballot question for the Tories is likely to morph into an us versus them contest. And so essentially, you don't have to like us, but you just have to like us more than them. I think that's what it's going to morph into, whether the Tories like it or not. And just on the healthcare question, you know, you are seeing efforts, you know, you mentioned the throne speech. So, you know, you saw significant investments, although with little detail around things like health capital spending, health human resource uh, action planning, and then hundreds of millions of dollars there. Again, not as much detail as, as folks. I think Jason, like you and I might like, but you're seeing the Tories make efforts to sort of battle the NDP on that, uh, on that ground. And maybe it's because they have to, but, you know, just sort of from a political strategy point of view, I, I'm just not sure if it were me that I would want to fight the new Democrats in a race uh, to who can spend more on the healthcare system. 
Um, because from my perspective, I just think we know who's going to win that battle. And I think the, that the the Tories have the challenge that they've got a record to run on on health care. And I was a significant part of some of that health reform work uh, that happened from 2016 to 2018. So I can talk to you in great detail about why three ERs is better than six. I won't do that and I won't bore your listeners uh, today uh, with, with that stuff. But the reality is the Tories have a record to run on. Frankly, it's not good in some respect. And the, the New Democrats don't, um, or to the extent that they do, you know, you'd have to go back uh, in significant history. And although political memories are long, they're also short in some ways as well. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you say that the NDP are looking and happy to have, a, and not surprisingly, an election on health care. But noted from the speech in the throne and some of the comments from the Premier Stephenson afterwards, uh, they've opened up this discussion. And we've seen this in other provinces as well, but on the private delivery of health care in a publicly funded system. What do you think of that approach? You know, does that give the NDP and Wab Canoe more of a, a stage, if you will, to really focus on healthcare? Or do you think that some of the messaging that Premier Stephenson has introduced on this and referencing other provinces um, is something that will help sort of, you know, maybe mitigate the NDP attack? You know, it's a really, really, really good question. And I think it depends on the strength of the two sides to communicate or to what extent they're able to get their message out. I think if we were looking at things objectively, I suppose, Jason, it, it depends on who you ask. But if you ask me, I think we're seeing a trend across the country, maybe with the exception of British Columbia, but certainly in Quebec and certainly in Ontario and certainly in Alberta and certainly in Saskatchewan, now in Manitoba, of increasingly privately funded healthcare capacity or healthcare interventions delivered in a public system. Um, and I think that to a large extent, that's happening already today. So when most folks go to their GP, they might not know, but that's likely a private clinic owned by an amalgam of physicians where they bill the public system. And so I think the more folks get in tune to that reality and also just in tune to just how upset folks are with, you know, waiting lists and wait times for procedures and waiting for cataracts and hip and knees, uh, hips and knees rather, you know, I think we may see that that narrative evolve and we may see the Tories come to a place of strength on that. I think the challenge in Manitoba, so that may be a strength for uh, Premier Smith if she's successful in May of 2023. That may be a, a strength for Premier Ford if he's successful next time around. I think the challenge for the Manitoba Tories is, look, they have a year and, you know, it takes a long time, particularly those structural reforms in health to, to move them forward in government. And so I'm not sure that there's enough runway to see that longer term message about the virtues of private delivery in a, in a publicly funded system move forward uh, in a year. But in the short term, I think it will it will depend on the strength of the ability to which the premier uh, is able to communicate her message. Um, and she will have the benefit of being chair of the Council of the Federation where this is the issue. And so that that may help her. Well, it's, a, it's an area that all the premiers are, are really focused on and, so, and, and fairly united on. So that's going to be an interesting opportunity for Premier Stephenson to demonstrate her leadership for Manitoba, but also nationally. You know, it's a real challenge for incumbent governors healthcare, right? We're in a situation where, as you described, with the, the, the long wait times, whether it be for emergency procedures, cancer treatments, you know, we see, see lineups out of our children's hospitals across the country. There seems to be more of an openness to that dialogue of private delivery within the public system. But like you say, it, it's hard to deliver results for an incumbent government quickly on that when we're on the even election. Switching gears a little bit, Rob, uh, away from healthcare, but more to other issues. 
How is affordability playing out in Manitoba and, and how important is the economy and job creation and, and what role do you think that might play in the next year? Yeah, you know, I think when we we talk about affordability, sort of the, the sacred cow in Manitoba, uh, rightly or wrongly, has historically been, and this, both the sacred cow and the political football, uh, Jason, has been Manitoba Hydro. So you have the, the opposition pushing this narrative that, you know, hydro rates are higher than they've ever been and that uh, the Tories uh, have this strong perspective uh, internally that they want to sell off um, crown assets. I think the reality, Jason, is that, frankly, no one would sell hydro because uh, no one would buy hydro, rather, because it's so sort of uh, capitalized to an extent that that it's 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 not worth anything when you amortize the assets properly. But but you're seeing on the affordability side, this increasing dynamic of the battle over hydro and hydro rates. Um, the government has made efforts to advance an affordability package and particularly focused on seniors. So unlike in Saskatchewan and, and some other provinces where those affordability approaches have been universal, so 500 bucks, I think it was, for every resident of Saskatchewan. So in Manitoba, it was more targeted I and mean, there were some income-tested elements. But, you know, Manitoba's economy in general, I think this is just to go back to sort of my previous comment. I think the government has had trouble finding its place or finding its its mojo, and they've been they've been unable to articulate how the economic benefits that have taken place under the Stephenson or, or the previous premier uh, governments have turned into real and meaningful change for Manitoba. It's a real positive uh, change for Manitoba. That connection between policy and government efforts to everyday life. It, it's such right. a and that's such a key thing coming out of COVID. I mean, people just expect that instant gratification. People expect they're very focused on their own households or they're focused on their own individuals. It's a real challenge for, for governments everywhere. Listen, you mentioned hydro. As soon as anyone mentions any kind of energy and the Albertan perks up in their own, that's me. So so look, there's an abundance of, of hydro and clean hydro, if you will, or clean electricity generation in Manitoba. You also have a pretty neat little port up there in Churchill that seems to get a lot of attention. There's been more talk of Manitoba and in the last year or so that doesn't relate to hockey than people might respect. I'm glad to hear that, Jason. <laughs> exactly. So look, I've got to ask the question. You know, we know Premier Smith wrote a letter to Premier Stephenson regarding uh, the Port of Churchill. Sounds like Premier Stephenson was quite clear. She's focused on what she feels are the important issues uh, that we've just discussed for Manitobans being healthcare and affordability. But she didn't outright say never, never, just kind of not right now. That's not my focus. And I think there's perhaps some dealings between the Premier and the Feds regarding the Port of Churchill and, and ultimately how it's going to be run in the future of it. Any thoughts on that, Rob? And, and do you see that discussion going any further or do you think that that is not, not a major factor for Manitobans these days? You know, I think what's really changed in that dynamic around the Port of Churchill and in particular the issue being the development of the deep water ports in Churchill so that you can get those tankers in and, and get the unrefined product on, onto ships. But I think what's what's really changed from the perspective of both Manitoba and Alberta is the Pierre Polyev factor. And I know we're not here today to discuss federal politics, but it's worth noting that Mr. Polyev made a specific commitment around the Port of Churchill um, should he be successful in election. I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, I think his electoral prospects seem to be sort of, I will call it at least in the realm of possibility. And if he's serious from a federal perspective about making investments to develop the deep water ports at the Port of Churchill, which would also involve some significant rail uh, investments uh, required to mm -hmm. uh, so to get the rail structures up to where they need to be in the north, um, I think that really is a game changer. And that's not something that 
uh, folks in Alberta or folks in Manitoba have seen in the past is that federal intervention. Um, and I think partly, look, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think that the security of supply dynamic, Jason, that we saw on the on the medication side uh, related to COVID-19 has really brought issues of energy security to light in a way that maybe they haven't been before. So I do think there's new life in that discussion. I mean, I think, you know, the reality is Premier Stephenson um, has, you know, domestic issues are, are really what win elections. And so she's focused on those bread and butter or kitchen table issues that we've been talking about. But I think there is new life in that discussion uh, for sure, Jason. Do you think it's been defined what's the benefit for Manitobans and all this? No, I, I, to, yeah. be, to be quite candid, I don't think Manitobans think about the Port of Churchill. I think it's more an issue for Albertans. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, a, a good friend of mine who was a staffer for many years, who he got to know a clerk who worked with Premier Walter Weir. And the nexus is Premier Walter Weir was Premier many, many years ago and Premier for six or eight or 10 years. And the first issue on the cabinet agenda, this first day as Premier, was developing Churchill. Eight years later, his last day in cabinet still on the agenda was developing Churchill. So I think it's not an issue for Manitobans the way it is probably for folks in Alberta or maybe even in, in federal circles. You know, it's a it's a really important couple of observations you've made there. You know, I think it does appear incumbent on Alberta uh, and maybe in Saskatchewan too to really communicate you know, what the benefits are for Manitobans, the importance of it to Western Canada and to the country if they're going to really pursue down those roads. The other piece, too, that you touched on is it's easy from the outside when you're looking for an export port to say, hey, look, there's Churchill. But the amount of infrastructure and investment that's going to be required, you suggested rail roads before we even get to the deep water port aspect of it. This is a remote area that we're talking about. And, and I think there's a lack of appreciation, the amount of infrastructure that's going to have and the federal funding required. Um, which is going to be a challenge under the current uh, the current regime. Look, uh, Rob, we've had a great conversation here. And I, and I am going to force you to pull out that crystal ball that you said you didn't have, but I know you got one somewhere. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, the next year looks like to finish off here. You know, what are your predictions for the next election? We do see Premier Stephenson. She seems to have good relationships with the mayor of Manitoba. That was different than perhaps the Premier Palliser and the previous mayor. Uh, we know Winnipeg is going to be a key, key jurisdiction. How do you see this playing out as we head to the next election? For sure. So I will I will endeavor to give you my best sense of analysis on this on this, Jason. So I think the government is moving to a place, and we saw this in the throne speech where they know that the clock is ticking, right? So you're seeing, you know, it's sort of been a let us get our hands on the wheel sort of administration for the last year. It's been a let's take the temperature down. It's been a you know, we don't need to sort of boil the ocean kind of government uh, as Stephenson got her hands on the wheel. That's changed rapidly in the last number of weeks and months as the government, I think, has rightly realized that they're just running out of runway. So as we looked at the throne speech, we saw an emphasis on tough on crime. We saw big investments in things like, you know, downtown cameras, which just don't exist in other cities. And we saw big efforts to try to define the ballot question as the protectors of affordability. I think you're going to see an increased uh, emphasis on the government's efforts to reduce the PST previously. I think you're going to see an increased emphasis on the government's commitments around eliminating the education property tax rebate. And those will all be geared to that sort of affordability arc. On the opposition side, I think that they're going to spend all their time criticizing the government's record on health care. And I think that resonates with people. I think they're going to talk about wait lists. I think they're going to dredge out individual people um, that have had to go out of province or have had to go through harrowing stories. And those are those are things that resonate with people. All of that to say, though, Jason, I'm not of the mind that this is all for naught. I think that what will happen is that affordability question from the Tory side is going to morph, as I said earlier, I think into that us versus them uh, kind of scenario. And it's going to be that question of 
you don't have to like us, but you have to just like us more than them. And all of the efforts are going to move away from affordability pre-campaign uh, and into that us versus them in the campaign. Uh, do I think it will work? You know, I think I'm just not prepared to answer that question today, Jason, because I, I need some There's more time. There's a smart answer. <laughs> I need some more time to reflect on that. Well, you know what? We'll give you that time, but we, we will promise to come back to you. Uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, Rob. Uh, it's going to be interesting how it sets up, see if those tax cuts come. You know, putting more dollars in people's pockets is, it wouldn't be the first time it worked in an election campaign as well. So, Rob, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, we're really looking forward. We'll watch out for that December 13th by-election to see if that's a harbinger for things to come. And it'll no doubt be an exciting year in, in Manitoba government and politics uh, coming up in 2023. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate the time today, Jason. Western Edge is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. This episode is produced by Krista Hudson, Zoe Kierstead, Monica Verk, and Michael Gould. I want to extend a very big thank you to our guest this week, Rob Pankhurst. It was an incredible discussion about what's been happening in Manitoba, as well as what to keep an eye on in 2023. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on Twitter at Western Edge by Nav to catch our next episode. As always, thanks for joining us and listening to The Western Edge. Thank you.